Hello and welcome to a self-destructive episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we're reviewing The Suicide Squad, 2021 soft reboot of the 2016 Suicide Squad. But before we get too far into it, let's head over to the shop and see what Travis is up to. Hey Travis, what's Jimmy's car still doing here? I told him we'd have it back to him this morning and it's already 3.30? Uh, I know man, my bad, my bad. I'm just, I'm a little nervous about driving up there. Nervous about driving up where? About what? Well, he, he's at his lake house and, well, as you can imagine, the house is on the lake. Go on. I mean, it's hard to say, but I'm, I'm afraid of the lake. Well, I'm I'm not asking you to drive the car into the lake. I'm I'm asking you to take the car up to Jimmy's house. No, no, I know, but my old man, he, he was tough on me. Every summer we'd go to we'd go to that same lake to fish and I hated fishing then. I hate it now. It just seems so cruel, you know, to capture an animal, to go out into their natural environment and take it away from its habitat. And and for what? I mean, to put it on a plate, to mount it on a wall. Uh, uh, are you fucking with me right now? Or like, are you just too lazy to drive up there? Like, are you really going to make me do this? Like, I, I, I don't understand. But, OK, here's the thing. I had a Game Boy at the time. I, I even had a fishing game on there, and my pops, he hated, he hated that I liked to fish on a video game more than in real life, and he fucking threw my Game Boy in the lake, and I, I never saw it again, and... Okay, you fucking dickhead. What is this? The fucking Space Jam 2? A new legacy? I tell you what. Go ahead, take the fucking car up there, get it done, and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and review the Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad is reassembled under new leadership and sent on a mission to eliminate all traces of Project Starfish, a secret extraterrestrial testing facility found in a small South American island country currently recovering from a military coup. Can a ragtag group of D-list villains and Harley Quinn complete their objective or will they die horribly in the DCEU's subplot to kill off any remaining traces of the first movie? Literally and metaphorically speaking. Alright Travis. Let's do a quick diagnostic. We're going to do a five-point inspection on this baby. We're going to go over plot, cast, narrative slash story, just general direction, music, and then we can go ahead and say it's a six-point inspection because I'm going to allow a, a section for additional notes. But I want to go ahead and, you know, what was your initial thoughts on, on the plot of the movie? Well, let's just go ahead, initial thoughts, and then we'll dive into the, the specific points. Well, uh, I need a bit of clarification. Uh, that was a good plot description. But uh, starfish, I don't know if you know, is a slang term for butthole. So do you serious? think there's any connection? <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm going to say uh, I, I think we opened the Italian job by me saying that I hate old movies. Uh, so full disclosure, I've got comic book movie fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say... This movie exceeded my expectations in just about every way. Um, 
I enjoyed it. I, I don't. I don't know how brief you want to keep this, but I enjoyed it. I, I did too. Um, and to to kind of take it back to some of our previous episodes, this felt less like a you know modern superhero movie, and it felt like there was so much '80s action move. Like it was almost in a mashup of '80s action movies and superhero. Like just there was so much to, down to the point where I'm like, there's a scene like. I don't know why, but there is one brief scene where you see boobs, and I'm just like, was this just <laughs> like the the homage to the 80s, like, gratuitous, like, we have to have a titty shot in here, and I'm just like, as soon as they did it, like, there's a part where they have to meet at a gentleman's club, and I'm just like, seriously? I'm like, well, like of all the places, I'm like, is, just, is this just so we can have a set piece where we can accidentally have a nip slip? And I'm, <laughs> I swear to God, it feels like that, because it's so brief, just so they can put it in the rating. Well, one of the things that you've talked about on several of our reviews is an appreciation for a script that pays things off mm -hmm. or has a reason for things to exist. This movie, to me, does that in spades. And like to your point, the, the bar scene, it, it's a callback to the 80s, but they get a lot accomplished in that scene. It's, mm -hmm. it's basically the team bonding scene. So mm -hmm. even even as gratuitous as that scene might be because it, it shows you some boobs and, and justify the R rating even more, it's it. It works in the movie. It, it accomplishes multiple things, and I think that's going to be my biggest compliment to this movie is just how efficient uh, James Gunn is in, in using the runtime. Yep, and I will say this before you know before we get into our, our five point inspection, it is definitely this movie felt very much to me. You know, he is known for the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, this was his R rated Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I think a lot of the the character archetypes were very similar. Um, like you could have easily swapped out some of the Guardians of the Galaxy with some of the Suicide Squad members and been like, okay, this is who this character kind of mirrors and stuff like that. It, it very much was like, okay, if if Disney were to let him make an R-rated Guardians of the Galaxy, I think it would have been very similar in tone to what we got with the Suicide Squad. So um, not that that's a you know a fault or a compliment, just merely stating like it is it is definitely like if you enjoyed the Guardians of the Galaxy and you're looking for something a little more on the R like a Deadpool meets Guardians of the Galaxy, I feel like this movie is like that per perfect marriage of of those two kind of movies. A hundred percent agreed. And uh, my last thought, just to piggyback off what you just said before we get into the the inspection, is formulaic is often used as a negative adjective for things but at the same time a formula is a formula because it's proven to work and the cynic in me before coming into this movie was like hey james gunn i mean you you, you nailed it I, I bet he's just going to do the r-rated uh, uh guardians of the galaxy and that's what he does and it makes for a, a fun entertaining movies so mm -hmm. formulaic oftentimes is a is a, a derogatory term uh much like the suicide squad as rick flag points out but in this case it, it works and even to that point like i think it's interesting the you know you you started this off by saying you have superhero fatigue guardians of the galaxy was almost kind of that that jolt of adrenaline during kind of i think where you you first started getting the superhero fatigue and it's like 
suddenly you had this movie about a talking raccoon and it was like supposed to be kind of like a goofy star wars and it's like there's no like in a talking tree and you're like this movie is gonna fucking blow i can't believe disney even took a chance on this and it's like surprising like holy shit like that was a that was a fun movie that was a fun ride and all of a sudden like, it kind of gave you this this boost to like okay i can do some more superhero movies now like it it even to that point james gunn had already taken a a very kind of as you said formulaic genre and kind of you know gave it some new life and i feel like he managed to do that again almost in, in a meta way where he took his own formula with guardians of the galaxy and managed to you know extend that and make it you know, to the next level, take it to to another a new place. Hundred percent. So it sounds like we both liked this movie. Um, so, do you want to kind of get into the details of why we liked it? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll start with you know, what did you think of just the overall plot of the movie? I mean, you did touch on it being you know, I, I think formulaic. Was there anything specific about the plot that you either liked or didn't like, or did you just find it like it was a pretty standard plot to kind of put the characters into? It, it was definitely a standard plot, but um, – and I know not to get too inside baseball here, but we also want to talk about the narrative. Now, where do you parse and differentiate the narrative and the plot? You know, honestly, uh, that's an excellent question. They're probably about the same thing. You know, we're testing out you know a new way of doing the, the diagnostics. So honestly, those are probably about the same thing. I probably should have just kept them together. Well, okay, it, it, that's fine. Like you said, we're we're uh, we're innovators here at the Hollywood Chop mm-hmm. Shop. We're trying to stay on the cutting edge of, of technology and, and development. But it's easy to look at this movie as very formulaic because on the surface, on the surface, it is. But I do. Uh, I think it, is her first name Amanda. Amanda Waller, played by yes. Viola Davis. Okay, I'm interested to see what you say about this. So. I'm going to try to keep out the original, seems crazy to say, Suicide Squad, because it was only, what, like four or five years ago? Mm -hmm. But so I'm not going to touch on her character in that movie. If you have thoughts about her to expand on this, please do. But I was impressed by the dynamic of Viola Davis with – uh, you know, uh, excuse me, Amanda Waller with Rick Flagg and then John Cena's character, what, Peacemaker? Yes. Is that his name? Yeah. So what I – on thinking about the movie afterwards, it's easy that – the opening scene is great. The, the invasion of the beach, you know, the storming of whatever tropical island this is. What I loved about – great- what I loved about the opening of it was that they told you everything you needed to know about the Suicide Squad and a – about five minutes and it wasn't even like it wasn't even like this is a last time or like previously on like to remind the audience like if you came into this fresh like they did a great job of just explaining what the suicide like they're criminals you get 10 years off your sentence for every completed mission there's a bomb in your neck if you don't listen boom that's all you fucking need to know like and they just drop you right into it yes and i think that compliment will come up a lot in this podcast but I appreciated the way that this movie catered to you, no matter whether you were a gigantic fan of the original comic or this was your first interaction with Suicide Squad. It does a very good job multiple times in the movies or in the movie to let you know what's going on and who's who. Uh, But specifically, I wanted to comment on the Waller character because 
even removing the first Suicide Squad, she is setting up Rick Flagg to die on the beach. Absolutely. In the, in the very first scene. And I think that is it, – it's not – you don't. It, the movie doesn't hit you over the head with it, which I think makes me appreciate it even more. But that's a very interesting dynamic to already start with because uh, there's a payoff later in the movie, which we can touch on. But I just I love Waller so many times in these comic movies. It's easy to make a mustache twirling villain. But Waller is a villain in a believable way in an unbelievable movie. This is this is what I love. Two things. About, I had it in my notes. I'm like, what is like? How is Flag going to react when he finds out he was set up? I had that in my notes. I was like, how are they going to pay that off? Which we'll get into. But I also had in my thing, my notes. What I loved about Waller and Peacemaker was they were essentially they had the same motives as a character. Only one of them was labeled a criminal. Like uh, to the point where like. A lot of Amanda Waller's, like, uh, lackeys and stuff like that, her employees were like, you wouldn't really do something to Bloodsport's child or something like that. And her response is, you have no idea what I am capable of for this country. And I'm like, it's amazing to me, like, again, just the parallels between her being the head of this, you know, organization to, you know, it's not to help the world, it's to help the U.S. specifically. And then your criminal peacemaker who essentially has the same ideology but you know he's behind bars like he because he got caught doing something i was like i just i really i loved the the pairing there it's like these are like they have the exact same motivation but yet one of them is considered a villain and one of them is considered i don't know if you would call them an anti-hero or essentially like who is the good guy in this situation like even amanda waller isn't the good guy no, not at all. And it, it's easy to say that and it's easy to kind of pay lip service to it. But again, this movie does a great job of, you know, from the first 10 minutes that she's willing to sell out Rick Flagg. And uh, if you if you know anything about the comics or at least you watch the first movie, you value Rick Flagg as a, an extension of Amanda Waller. And yet she is not only willing to sacrifice him, she kind of puts him in a position to be sacrificed and, and Peacemaker almost becomes like the replacement to Rick Flagg in mm -hmm. Amanda Waller's mind. Well, Rick Flagg to the audience is the Boy Scout. You know, he is, I guess if you're going to label somebody a good guy, he is supposed to be, you know, your compass points north. You know, he is the, the moral to the point where when he finds out about like there's been experiments on people you know, despite him loving the United States and, you know, he, you know, wants to serve his country. At the end of the day, he knows morally what is right and wrong. And that is that is his code. Whereas Amanda Waller and Peacemaker, their code is the U.S. above all else. Like it is their job is to protect the U.S. more than anything, you know, and Peacemaker is to protect the peace. But to that extent, he, you know, he views the United States as, you know, the peacekeepers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it is very interesting to see that that dynamic. I will say, you know what? I'm just going to say this to the audience. I was going to try and do the whole five point inspection thing. It's not going to work. That's not the way we do this podcast. We're just going to go free form again, Travis, because we're like, it's <laughs> it's like I want to talk about characters we were doing, now. Hey, we were doing a good job. But we, yeah, yeah, we were. But I, now I at this point, about... like I want to talk about characters because I'll I'll tell you this. I um what one of my biggest pet peeves with the movie and I did very much enjoy this movie. There were there I had two 
two sub- substantial complaints about it. The one was Bloodsport fucking loved him as a character. Um, I did think it was interesting that they replaced Will Smith as the marksman with Ibris Elba as the marksman. Like they, like I don't know. There is so much of this movie I felt was either James Gunn or Warner Brothers taking a slight at the original movie, where it's just like yes. it was. This is the way this movie should have been done the first time, but it wasn't type situation. And we'll get into that because I'm gonna really go off on that. But his motivation the entire time was just his daughter like he didn't give a fuck about anybody else it was just to save his daughter so i thought at the very end when he decides to change his mind and go after starro to try and save the people did not fit his character and i know that they were trying to go with the whole character arc about you know him being you know he needs to be an anti-hero where it's more than just about himself but i thought they could have easily solved that by simply making it where rat catcher 2 was like, no, I'm going to be the one who, like, I'm not leaving these people. And then he decides, Bloodsport's like, no, like, he's already projected his daughter onto her. Like, he's like, no, I have, I have a, a duty to protect you because I see you almost as a surrogate daughter or, you know, as, a, as an avatar for my real daughter. And then that would be his motivation to go and fight Starro. I didn't think him being the one to start the you know, the turnaround and the basically the ignoring the order to leave was was the right move. I I understand why they did it. I just think character wise that that would not have been his character's move. Despite his uh, develop, I, dev- despite his arc in the movie, I thought it would have been better if if Ratcatcher 2 had been the one to walk off first. I 100 percent agree with that. Um, and I know. For people who've listened to past episodes, the the opening uh, where we kind of do a, a, a skit or whatever you would want to call it, radio play, I don't I don't care, but it's often that's the way that I want to interject my feelings because the only way that this movie fails to me is when they try to interject that uh, saccharine just you know here's my backstory. I had a father that was a drug addict, or you know for some reason uh, Idris Elba's character is afraid of rats, and I felt like that was a big time uh, script writing in a bad way moment, where like somebody felt the need to connect those characters beyond just father and daughter. You also have to do the rat thing. It, it just it was it felt shoehorned. So it yeah. That's one of those where I almost feel like the end of the movie was backwards engineered and like, you know, James Gunn wanted him like to pet the rat at the end to show that he was getting past that and growing as a character in that very superficial way. So it's like, okay, if we do this thing where he's afraid of rats, now we can kind of have it throughout like we can have it, you know, breadcrumb throughout the movie where he pets the rat at the end. And it's just like to to your point, it didn't feel organic, Mm -hmm. but so that uh, Rat Catcher 2 could like cover him and and Mm -hmm. call back to the scene where the rats kept them warm. But in this case, she's just kind of like, I'm going to throw an arm over you, even though there's seven billion rats Mm -hmm. running around like my arm is (laughs) it just that it it was not needed in this movie. If if you're going to try to do that. And here's the thing. There's a lot of emotional moments in this movie. I, James Gunn is good at that. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Guardians of the Galaxy 2 with Yondu. Like, that's probably, to my mind, the most emotional moment in the MCU is when Yondu saves Star-Lord. Yeah. And James Gunn is able to achieve that 
at times in this movie, but the rat thing was just a bridge too far. You're, you're, you're trying too hard to tie everything together. It, it wasn't needed, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, though, in terms of, you know, the backstory, I do think the scene where Ratcatcher 2 is describing her relationship with her father was maybe the most beautiful scene in the movie. Like, it's just the way it's shot on the bus and, like, it's a reflection in the bus window. I'm like, I was not expecting that level of cinematography and, like, kind of artistry in a superhero movie. I'm like, I was like, wow, I'm actually pretty impressed with like the way they told it was like it wasn't this generic flashback where like they cut hard to another scene i'm like it's her narrating it in this reflection of the bus and it doesn't change scenes and i'm like it's actually kind of powerful to me that you don't have that jump cut that takes you out of the moment like you're there with them as she's describing it and it doesn't like i said i i thought that was actually very well done so i'm glad you brought that up because i agree but here's where i'm gonna push back against you really, really hard. That scene is beautiful, but it also just drops out of the sky. It's just like, let's insert this. Uh, they're on the bus on the way to the bar. It feels a little out of place as far as what comes before and what comes after. On its own, it's a beautiful scene, but you use some... <laughs> It's interesting that you said you appreciated the way that it was shot. It wasn't just smash cut. You know, it was reflections in the mm. window. I agree. But then yet at the end, the Taika Watiti scene mm -hmm. is the definition of just forced in there and smash cut to them sitting on the roof. Which as beautiful I, I, is. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. There you go. Mm -hmm. Well, that scene is beautiful on its own, but man, does it feel like it was placed in there in an edit. Like they weren't sure where to put that scene, so that's where they put it because it makes kind of sense because she's having her heroic moment, but God, did that feel out of place to me. And I'll say this, I loved that scene. The whole I loved the music that was being played over that. I thought the music was fantastic and his whole thing about like, you know, Dada, why rats? Because, you know, rats yes. are the most hated thing and if they have a purpose, everybody is. I'm like, oh my God, that's that's a beautiful line. I'm like, totally agree with them. I'm like, it is very weird how they smash that into the scene while they're killing a giant starfish. <laughs> I was like, this is very weird how, how they, they jumped this in there. But I just want to go back. In terms of things that felt completely out of place and just kind of thrown in here, how about just Harley Quinn in general? Her entire... Yeah. Her entire subplot and her with the... Like, all of that felt so unnecessary in this movie. It, it was like, well, we have Harley Quinn... You know, that's the the extent of like having a an actor's name on the poster. It's like, well, we have Harley Quinn. People will come to see Harley Quinn, even though Birds of Prey was dog shit. I'm just like, her entire narrative made no sense to me. And I was like, if you completely took that out of this movie, I don't I think it would the movie would be just a, like honestly might be stronger without it. It felt so shoehorned in. And like, yes, it gave the opportunity for a few funny moments where like Peacekeeper's up and he goes, I've got the only person in the building and it's like, it's the fucking, <laughs> it's, a secretary. it's the secretary. You're just like, Jesus Christ. I will say John Cena's Peacemaker was absolutely fantastic in this movie. Like I legitimately like loved his presence and almost everything that he did. We'll get into a few of my yes. favorite scenes in a minute, but like that whole thing. And then like when blood sports about to climb the thing and Harley Quinn well, comes around. Quick, like, can huh? I, mm -hmm. Oh, are, are you going to keep touching on Harley Quinn? Cause I want to talk about her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just want to bring it back to Holly Quinn. Like, it's just the entire her being on the beach, like her being there again, just her in this movie general. I was like, she did not need to 
be there. Like, she felt like such a distraction to me. And again, she just added runtime to this movie that I didn't think needed to be there. Yes. So anybody who listens to this with any regularity, one of my my number one complaints is when a movie is too long. And when I started the movie, the first thing I check is the runtime. And this, I believe, is like two hours, 12 minutes. I think it's like 220. Uh, 220. Okay. So I was like, okay, that's that seems too long. I'm going to give this movie credit. And it felt too long. Like Mm -hmm. in the I I paused it right before the. um, Oh, God, what's the starfish's name? Starro. (laughs) Starro. Yeah. Starro the Conqueror. I paused it right before he was basically basically about to escape. And I'm like, okay, we should be in the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. And there was like 43 minutes left. And I was like, God, I I think I was right there with you. I think I paused it at an hour and 40 minutes. Maybe it is two hours and 20 minutes or 12 minutes because I paused it like an hour and 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, the movie felt like it was about to end to me. And I was like, fuck, I still have almost half this movie left to go. And then I was reflecting on it because I'm a big believer in if you're going to complain about the length of a movie, tell me what you would cut out. And so I started to think about the movie and I didn't have many complaints, even the Harley Quinn stuff, like when she uh, gets, uh, I guess, goes on the date with the president Mm -hmm. who's president for about four hours. That stuff on its own is good. I I like the character development of Harley Quinn, where she recognizes that she's falling for another Joker-esque kind of character. Mm -hmm. And her way to walk away from the relationship is to murder him. I appreciated that. In the speech that she gave, I was like, that's great character development for Harley Quinn. And I was like, did this not happen in Birds of Prey? I didn't see Birds of Prey, but I'm like, this feels like it should have been in that movie. Like this is the definition of an ensemble piece. And yet she's got, you know, 30 minutes of screen time where there's nobody else in the suicide squad there. And really the only reason that I can think of is like you said, it's Margot Robbie. She's the biggest star in the movie. We have to give her, a segment mm-hmm. even though it didn't it didn't help the flow of the movie at all yeah i almost think it would have been more entertaining if the suicide squad's mission was not to kill starro but was actually to retrieve harley quinn like she had been kidnapped and ultimately you find out that like the joker is threatening like the gotham or some city and like amanda waller's like i'm gonna send in all these other criminals to save harley because we don't like the joker is a loose cannon we have no idea what he's capable of, and he's asking for Harley back. I mean, that to me would have been almost more, almost a, a reverse saving Private Ryan thing. Or it's like you risked all of these other villains' lives to save a different villain, you know, because somehow her life is worth more. And it's like, it just, like I said, it Harley Quinn felt very unnecessary in this movie, especially like because, you, as you said, like. You see the ensemble. Harley Quinn is almost removed immediately from the beginning of the movie, which I will say James Gunn did a fantastic job of establishing very quickly that everyone was on the fucking chopping block <laughs> at the yes. beginning of the movie, especially when he killed Captain Boomerang. The moment the moment Boomerang got killed in like the first 10 minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, fuck, no one's safe. I'm like, they killed Captain Boomerang. I'm like, I literally like anyone with the exception of Harley Quinn, which apparently... James Gunn came out in an interview and said, like, oh, he could have killed her if he wanted to. I'm like, no, you couldn't. She's worth too much to Warner Brothers. There's no way they would have let you kill her. But yes, you probably could have killed off anybody else, which you pretty much did. Um, 
So I uh, that was that moment for me. I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, I there's legitimate tension. Like you've actually managed to create tension in the superhero movie because I do not know who is going to survive this. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've loved that. That's probably my favorite. Well, I won't even say that because there's a lot to like about this movie. But I yeah, I did enjoy the tension. Like there's multiple times where King Shark, I'm like, he might be dead. Like and you feel bad what the movie. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't want it. That's the biggest thing. That's if you want to boil everything down to why I like this movie, it's because there were multiple characters where I, I, I legitimately was like, I don't want this character to die. Mm-hmm. And when I say I have superhero fatigue, that's probably reason number one that I do is because I know everybody that I know who they are, they're going to make it to the end of the movie. And this movie does not do that at all. No. And yeah, I like I, I can't point to one specific reason why I like any particular character. And that's why the movie works, because you can't point to, uh, you know, your wife, Kate. You can't point to one particular reason why you love her or your friend. You can't point to one particular reason why you like them. So a lot of these characters feel lived in, which is insane because of what this movie actually is. It's a, it's a fucking, it's Sylvester Stallone voicing a shark wearing shorts, shorts. walking around. And yet I care. Yeah. And when you say voicing, like, it's like him saying the word hand or dumb friends. Like he has no vocabulary, <laughs> but like he's a lovable doofus that you're like, I don't want anything bad to happen to King shark. Like I need King shark to make it. <laughs> Yeah, and and honestly, one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie is when he walks in, like, for whatever reason, the rest of the squad is going down on an elevator, and he's like, I'm just going to stroll up the stairs here, and then look at this aquarium, and that scene is beautiful. Like, Mm -hmm. the, the score in that scene, the visuals of them following him, and how he feels like he's got new friends, and in classic James Gunn fashion, they try to... (laughs) eat him within two minutes of that scene (laughs) absolutely um yeah i it's just i this is what i've always said about the the dc cinematic or just dc in general i think but definitely their cinematic universe is marvel isn't perfect marvel but marvel's heroes are typically flawed in some way even captain america has his own flaws maybe it's how naive he is and he chooses like He's so good, he only chooses to see the good in people, which allows him to be vulnerable, you know? Um, Or the fact that, you know, he was, you know... Yeah, again, DC has a problem where almost all of their heroes are gods, which means they are completely unrelatable. They're, you know, what's the only thing that can defeat them is a mirror version of themselves, and you just, you constantly run into this thing where, like, oh, Superman has to fight bad Superman. Batman is fighting bad Batman, which is, you know, Joker, the antithesis of Batman. I mean, for God's sake, the Flash's arch nemesis is literally named Reverse Flash. Like, it's just all of them wind up being, like, because they're so perfect, they wind up just having to fight mirrors of themselves like the dark version of themselves where so when you have the suicide squad all of these characters are so deeply flawed that they're easy to just almost be ident- like they're identifiable in different ways where it's just again you have the lovable doofus you have like again you know the rat catcher too i thought was just she was a very just childlike but like a beautiful character and the fact that she's almost like the you know sees the good in everything type person you know i i choose to want to be friends and love and, and stuff like that like i just i i truly did it just enjoy even 
Peacemaker, who is fucking batshit crazy, was was an enjoyable character to experience. Um, and my my best. Well, can I? Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, mm. let me just uh, touch on Ratcatcher for just a second, like. The joke to introduce her, at least early on, is she's a millennial. She's asking about the projector. She doesn't know what a projector is. She's always tired. She doesn't like to wake up in the morning. I feel like in a lot of lesser comic movies, that would be her only note. Mm -hmm. But that's just an element of her. So, like, every now and then they'll call back to the jokes, like – She's always just waking up when they're arriving places, but it's subtle. So it feels like an actual 3D character. So sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but I, I think that's what that movie, this movie does very well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I will go into some of my favorite scenes, especially with the character interaction. Um, as you touched on earlier, the bar scene is fantastic. Just them finally kind of seeing them kind of, it's one of the most genuine, I'm going to say superhero are definitely superhero movie, but maybe movie in general, just watching a ragtag group of people come together and kind of identify. I'm like, hey, he did a fantastic job in a very short amount of time, making them actually feel like a disbanded group who is finally starting to connect. Um, but one of my absolute favorite scenes in the entire movie, and I'm sure it's going to be one of yours too, is the competition between Bloodsport and Peacemaker as they're going yes. through the Rebel Village. Because... Travis, there's a moment when they start attacking the village, my first mindset, like before it even starts, and maybe it's because of how much we watch movies, I'm like, I'm positive, like when Flag got captured, they weren't wearing uniforms. I'm pretty sure those were like the rebel fighters that got captured. I'm like, how is this going to play out? Like, I'm pretty sure they're going to attack the rebel fighters. Like, and then the way that it, it plays out just that way and the funniest way possible because... At a certain point, like, I'm thinking that as they start to go through the village. And the moment they killed the woman who's cleaning her clothes <laughs> is the moment where it clicks to me where I'm like, oh, my God, they really are just killing an innocent village of rebels. <laughs> and, like, they don't realize. It. And then they kick in the door and, like, the line from from Bloodsport, no one likes a show off. And, oh, God, I have it written down because it is probably one of the best lines yes. in the entire movie. Um, oh, God. Oh, Jesus. They do if it's fucking, fucking sick. <laughs> they do if it's fucking sick. He's like, fuck, he's right. <laughs> it's just like, and then they kick in the door and there's Flag having tea with the rebel leader. And I'm just like, oh my God, as they're trying to like explain how they just destroyed. No, 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 Brett, 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 Brett. Why didn't any of my people alert me that you were here? And they're all like, well, uh, there were what people? There, there were no people when we got here. <laughs> That's the that's my favorite sequence in the movie. And, and oh god, yeah. And King Shark like what does he vomit up? A finger. A finger. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like and I'm like how are they going to work this in where it makes sense for them to still team up and just, like it's one of the it's a throwaway line she's like, "Well, they killed my family, so I would do I would align myself with anyone to take them down." Like they like the Suicide Squad kind of killed your extended family, though. Like, but I'm, I guess, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing. I'm like, okay, I can suspend my disbelief that she'd be like, okay, I will team up with you guys if it means I can take out the generals. And I'm just like, it's just, it's such a ridiculous scene. The two of them going back. I mean, it made me think of it, uh, bringing me back to like the Lord of the Rings with Gimli and Legolas's, uh, yeah, Legolas's um, rivalry, but like an R-rated version of that rivalry. (laughs) 
And here's here's what I love. I've mentioned it on previous podcasts. I love if a scene can both be comedic and tell you something about the story slash plot slash character. If we know that Amanda Waller intended for Flag to die on the beach, this additional mission is, oh, wait, Flag's alive. Go kill him. Right. I mean, isn't that what this mission is to wipe out the rebels and kill flag? My thought like was the it... suicide squad doesn't necessarily know that because they're just saying all they hear from Waller is go ahead and, and kill everyone with extreme prejudice that has captured flag. So I'm like, Waller is still kind of pulling the strings unless I'm wrong about that. What no, do you think? My thought process was a similar vein, but like not to necessarily kill flag, but like, oh, we need to save Flag, not because I have any attachment to him, but because now if he were to find out I basically sold him out, it, he's a liability. Yes. And it's it's and, one of the, the rebels. Mm. If the rebels are trying to take over this country, they could potentially discover the data that later leads to the peacemaker and mm -hmm. flag fight. Yes. Exactly. OK, so yep. we're on the same page there. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, I I did. I absolutely I laughed out loud at that when scene. When Peacemaker when Peacemaker stabs the guy who is like sick or wounded and is under the blanket <laughs> the and he just nonchalant just like six times. Yeah, just I'm like, oh my god. And then somebody's in a bath and they don't even shoot him directly. They shoot the TV that he's watching so that he electrocutes him. <laughs> I mean, this is the most nihilistic uh, superhero movie that I've ever seen, and it's not even close. Oh, my God. It is just it is. I did. I absolutely fucking loved that scene. I thought that scene was so good. Um, even the rivalry between Peacemaker and Bloodsport, I think, does definitely pay off in the end, especially when Bloodsport takes him down. And it's the whole thing about, you know, how, how, how it's like a oh, smaller bullets. I'm like, oh. Good callback, you they, know. Yes, they say, yeah, they set that up in that rivalry scene. Mm -hmm. Um. Oh, and even to that point, because it's it's funny. James Gunn to me is a person. We always talk about a script, like how does nobody go back over the script and realize what you're doing? Um. And I feel like Gunn is that person who reads over the script, but he's able to detach himself and read it as a viewer, not as you know, without the burden of knowledge, where he knows what he's trying to do. Because when when Amanda Waller introduces Bloodsport, he's like, "This is a trained man. Anything in his anything in his hands is yes. a weapon of mass destruction, or anything of that." And then she goes like, "This is a, a team chosen specifically for their task," and then describes Peacemaker the exact same way. He's like, "Oh, this is a man who's anything <laughs> yeah. anything in his hands is a deadly weapon." I'm like, "I'm like, are they trying to be mad?" I'm like, "That's literally the way they describe Bloodsport." And then before I can like even finish a thought, he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" She goes, "What do you mean?" Because that's exactly how you just described me. What do you mean everybody was chosen specifically for this mission? I'm like, "Oh, he did. He he's he's being meta as fuck in this movie, but so like poignant. Like it's just it's so sharp and intentional and hysterical to me." Well, here's the thing. I love that line for all the reasons you stated, but. Like you said, it's better. It's also a way to point out that you're just Will Smith again, mm -hmm. but now you're Idris Elba because in the DC universe, we can just – there are so many characters that have the same fucking abilities that we can just plug you in here. So I, I love that James Gunn winked at the camera and was like, yes, we know. This used to be Will Smith, and now we're calling him a slightly different name even though it's the same character down to the father-daughter dynamics. But – 
gun does gun never hides from the fact that he is remaking a movie that's only like four or five years old oh i think you mentioned that earlier yeah oh yeah it is like when i would like the synopsis i gave you at the beginning of the thing like it is very clear to me like they are literally trying to erase all traces if he had been allowed to kill harley quinn i believe he would have just basically erased all traces of the original suicide squad because the only character from the original movie that was not killed well aside from amanda waller but the only suicide squad member who was not killed from the original is harley quinn and i'm like they because she's a cash cow you can't kill her but i'm like he kills boomerang at the beginning he winds up killing flag which i will say funny callback I did think it was almost like a Three Kings moment where I'm like, I didn't need the shot of the thing going <laughs> into his heart. And I'm like, I like him being stabbed in the chest was enough for me. I'm like, and it was the only scene that was done like that where we had to do the x-ray like fucking stab. And I'm like, was there a reason for this shot? Like, did we need to see it go into his heart? And the only reason I can think that is like, so that they could try and do like, did you watch the post credit scene? I did, yes. Okay, so the post-credit scenes is they, you know, they're talking about like, yeah, we actually found his heart beating, blah, 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 and it winds up being Peacemaker. But unfortunately, I already knew it was going to be Peacemaker because I knew that they were making an HBO series with John Cena, with Peacemaker. I, by the way, I did not know that okay. until after watching this movie. Which, after watching this movie, I am super excited for because if it keeps the same tone, like... John Cena awkwardly dancing in the nightclub was hysterical to me, where he is just like in that teensy, teensy. It's a small shirt, and it's also a short shirt. And yes, he's just like, I, he's just awkwardly dancing. And I'm like, it's like, it's so funny. Again, it fits his character perfectly, but good Lord, is it hysterical to watch. Yeah, and this kind of tangentially relates, but I... I I'll talk about the the X-ray vision internal organ scene, but I want to touch on just because you brought it up, him wearing that polo shirt. And then, like you said, it's way too short. It's way too tight. Like he gets out of the van at one point and his stomach is hanging out the bottom of it. But I love when they are he feels the need to wear the helmet, even though he's wearing tiny shorts and a polo and then uh blood sport is wearing the helmet but just everything else from the neck down is just it looks like he's on a yacht it's casual white guy attire <laughs> like I, I loved that um but your, your point about the the internal shot of the heart it i hated that shot i would have hated it no matter what but that dramatically to me is the best scene in the movie by far because it's a great it's a great scene great great performances on both flag and peacemaker's part but then that shot of the heart just like in three kings it takes me out for a moment and i, I remember that i'm watching a movie so i thought that really as small a thing as it is it really took away from that scene yeah and again it's one of those like for a you know, James Gunn is another one of those very intentional with everything he does. I'm like, I don't understand what the point of that shot was because it is not like any other shot in the movie. Um, it is just, it is very strange to me why he felt the need to do the X-ray shot of him being stabbed in the heart. Yeah, again, especially in a scene that's got as much dramatic tension as that does to introduce an element in the movie that you have not shown at all. It, it 
it stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we jump into, you know, Chop Shop here, the only other, you know, and this is a very minor um, thing is I did think that Polka Dot Man had a, a decent character arc where he kind of got to confront his mother. Um, also that every time he like you realize that he's picturing everyone as his mom, I thought those scenes were hysterical. It's I the first time it happened, I wasn't expecting it. But then when he's dancing with all of his moms in the nightclub, yes. I thought was hysterical. Um, wasn't expecting it. But like I did think like I did think that there was going to be a point to everybody like, oh, they were actually specifically chosen for the mission, Cause especially when you find out Peacekeeper like had an ulterior motive. He was approached by Waller that needed to make sure that the data didn't get out. I'm like, OK, there was a reason to have him in there. I thought. Polka Dot Man, when they explained that he had a, what was it, multidimensional or like extraterrestrial virus injected into him, I thought he was going to be the linchpin that they had to use to take out Starro. Like his virus, he was going to give the virus to Starro the Conqueror, which was going to kill Starro or make him shrink or lose his ability to take over people's minds. And I'm like, instead, it was just he fried the leg and then got killed. Like, oh, you know, he's a hero. He he got to actually be a hero and then he dies. And I'm like, oh, that was kind of anticlimactic. Like, I definitely thought there was going to be more with that like he was going to have a bigger impact than he did yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because number one yeah the comedy of him seeing his mother he does james gunn does not overuse that but every time he uses it it works brilliantly because yeah the, the bar scene it, it was an eight out of ten and him dancing with a bunch of his mothers uh <laughs> that took it over the top but uh, to your earlier point about Harley Quinn being shoehorned in here, I think that's exactly where that problem comes home to roost because the movie, as a marketing tool, as a extension of DC, they need Harley Quinn to have that heroic moment, even though what does she really do? She just lets the rats in. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, like you said, I think James Gunn really wants to focus on Ratcatcher 2 and Polka Dot Man. And I, I would bet anything that, that his explanation, his backstory, that is what James Gunn wanted to do. But for financial reasons, we have to have Harley Quinn in that climactic moment. Yeah, I, I would have guessed because he has said like he got a lot more creative freedom than he does with um, Marvel. That, you know, Kevin Feige uh, definitely is a little bit more hands-on with the editing and making sure, which is, again, why Marvel actually works so well, is because you have someone overlooking everything. So I, right. I'm totally on board with that, but I do feel like that was the one moment, the one thing that the heads at Warner Brothers said, like, you have to have Harley Quinn in this because she's going to bring in audiences. And, you know, I, it, like you said, it, it shows. Um, the only other thing I want to touch on, because I, I feel like I have danced around it a lot, um, and I just want to make sure I actually say it before we jump into Chop Shop, is I thought Ibris Elba as Bloodsport was phenomenal in this movie. His interaction with every single one of the characters was fantastic. I just, when, every time the Poco that man, when he says something like, I just, like, how did you kill all of them? I just pictured them as my mom, and he's like, God, fuck me. Like, his... It is so genuine to me. Like, he is just like, he doesn't want to be a leader. And every time he hears one of those things, he's like, God fucking damn it. Like, why am I like this? I'm doomed. Like, this is a suicide squad. Like, I am. I did. I very much. I loved his character design. I thought that helmet was badass. Yes. Um, Yes. 
the weapon doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me, but I don't know if that's a DC where it just kind of like like magic symbols or whatever, but just in general, his character design was fantastic. And again, to me, overall, the, the biggest thing I can say, just when you're looking at it as a whole, if you look, is is the, the importance of good direction. And I will say that on twofold. A, between Suicide Squad and The Suicide Squad, which even the title of the movie is a shot at the first one because it is The Suicide Squad, establishing that the original one was like phonies, like they didn't really exist. Um, but even that, Ibris Elba was so awesome and fantastic in this movie, completely wasted in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, he, yeah, he's in Thor, right? He was in Thor, and I'm like... And he's even said that he like he was not happy with what you know his like what he got to do in Marvel and all that and his a character eventually gets killed. But I'm like watching him in this. I'm like, you had a a phenomenal actor you could have done something with, and you like super underutilized. Like he could have brought a lot to the Marvel Cinematic Universe had he been used appropriately, like he was in this movie. Yeah, and, and I agree, and the only thing I'll add, too, is it's a high degree of difficulty to kind of be the straight man in these kind of movies, and that's what the movie asks him to do, and God, does he do it perfectly, because this kind of character, I guess, in a way, it's the, the viewer's avatar, right? We talk about that in some of the other reviews, and it's so difficult to make that kind of character likable and charming. And God, I, I don't, it, it's a combination of script writing, direction, Idris Elba's performance. But like, it's easy to make him the straight man with no story. But then also, he's got a great, the one scene he has with his daughter in prison, I think is great, <laughs> yeah. where they're yelling at each other, fuck yeah. you, fuck you. Yeah. And just his different deliveries of the fuck yous. I mean, even something that small, it's like, fuck you, no, fuck you, fuck fuck you like it's sing-songy like it's mm -hmm. just perfect like so many little details i think that's where like to your point the direction the script writing the acting the level of quality shows in those connective tissue scenes there's no reason to make that scene with his daughter that good and really when you think about the 2016 suicide squad will smith's got a daughter sub plot in there but it feels just corny and generic whereas this one feels lived in even though it gets about five minutes of screen time uh and here's the thing travis um i totally forgot that was a subplot i just remember will smith being in the movie that's about yeah. it <laughs> and, and i mean last thing before we get to chop shop this movie made me hate will smith even more because yes. like will smith is just adverse to taking chances i think they wanted him back for this and he didn't want to do it and i'm like thank god you also yeah <laughs> yes thank god but like he also turned down django unchained mm -hmm. and jamie fox like I, I don't understand will smith's program like he desperately needs a movie like this but I, like you said i'm happy that it was idris elba not him absolutely all right so let's get in to some chop shop Travis, do you want to start us off? Like, uh, this this is the second week we've started a new thing. 
um, where we we have a little bit more direction. Last week we did we found out prior to reviewing Travis was going to have to turn he's gonna have to turn the uh, the Suicide Squad into a comedy. Excuse me, and I was going to have to turn the Suicide Squad into a HBO esque miniseries. So, uh, Travis, do you want to start with you or with myself? Uh, I'll start it out. Um, All right. So I the think... miniseries is like. <laughs> no, you you, you, know you, what, go, Brad, you I, go you go you go you go. I'm gonna let you get away with that just because we were supposed to record this last night and mm-hmm. uh, you know I pulled a Lion King and fucked it up. So yeah, touche. Um, I've got smaller bullets, just so you know. Uh, so, as you can imagine, Brett, uh, the premise of turning the Suicide Squad into a comedy was a little bit difficult because I laughed more during this movie than I have in a long time. So, I guess by definition, it is a comedy. Um, so, I tried to go a little more out there, maybe some world building. Uh, so this is not exactly chopping the Suicide Squad, but this might be a nice prequel spinoff, depending on your view. But here's what I got. So I want to focus on because one thing we did not touch on in our review is Starro, uh, the giant starfish kaiju, which honestly um, was kind of tragic when he dies. The final delivery okay. of him saying I was oh, happy. Re- oh, am I going to ruin your chop shop? No, no, no. Say it. Say it. It, it fits perfectly. I was happy just drifting among the stars. Like, it actually makes you, like, when they kill him, you actually feel bad for him. Like, oh, man, he was just, like, he didn't want to be a kaiju conquering the Earth. He was happy, and we fucked with him. Yes. Yes. I can't. What a, and again, that that's the probably the number one thing I'll tip my hat to James Gunn to because in the middle of like a climactic, because uh, we mentioned when we paused the movie and we're like, oh, Jesus, this has got that much more runtime, and I was like, oh, it's just gonna be, uh, which, which one of the Avengers has them drop in the city, like the city floats oh, up and kills Age a of bunch Ultron. of people. Yeah, or uh, Man of Steel, you know, the city destruction at the end. I thought it was gonna be just that, and then. Not only was it that, but in an entertaining way. But yeah, you hear that line that he drops, and I'm like, fuck. In the middle of a blockbuster picture, I'm having like an existential crisis thinking about this starfish kaiju. So, I mean, brilliant on James Gunn's part. And, and I think that's what inspired this Chop Shop, because I Starro in one line became the best villain that DC's ever had uh, in this new, you know, post Zack Snyder era. Um, so I wanted to think about Starro. So what I want to do is we're going to have a movie that opens up and it's young Starro. Uh, presumably he's got a home planet that he lives on um, and he's a teenager and he's a rebellious teenager. Uh, we meet his starfish parents, his, his starfish father is a little bit domineering okay. uh, his starfish mother is a, a political leader on whatever starfish planet that he emanates oh, from. oh wow okay all right and he's trying desperately to get out of that shadow and he wants to go explore the universe and his parents are adamantly against that but he's like no i'm, I'm gonna do my thing i you can't stop me i'm an adult even though he's only a teenager so he sets out on his adventure to explore the universe and you can have him exploring some different planets, meeting different aliens, and it, it would be a, a lighthearted comedic touch. Um, but then we kind of 
leave Starro, and we don't know what happens to him. And I'm we almost go back thinking. Star- I'm almost thinking like a Bambi. If Bambi's parents were over uh, bearing and not killed, type situation. Like he's gonna meet different animals throughout the the uni- you know the metaphorical forest of the universe. You know, and have these little hijinks, these little cute little moments. You know, it's it's a, is that what we're you know, is that yes. kind of where we're going with this? Okay, okay. So that's the vibe, and, and we have those experiences as he goes throughout the planets. But then we see him, we see him interact with the astronauts from this movie that basically capture him, and leads to what happens in Starro in this movie. So once that happens, we don't see Starro again and we come back to his parents. And I mentioned that his mother was a kind of a powerful politician on this planet. They get a distress call from Starro. It's basically the moment he escapes before he starts wrecking the city, he calls his parents like, Hey, it's been 30 years. He doesn't have time to really get into the details before um, the Suicide Squad starts to fight him. So it's an incomplete message. But his mom's like, you know what? As a politician, I'm going to create a task force to go to Earth and look for Starro, collect data, find out what happens. So we pick a kind of a ragtag group from the Starfish planet, much like the Suicide Squad. Okay. And they go to Earth. Now, this movie, Starro, it's kind of a hive mind thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. he can control anybody that he has his babies attached to. So the conceit is all of these starfish creatures can do that. But like if it comes out of one particular starfish, they control whoever they attach to. In other words, it's not a true hive mind. You're just an extension of who attached to who. So they get to Earth and they have to blend in, right? So they attach each each one of the task force attached to a person and they start to get enamored with Earth and it's kind of hijinks ensue. It's they're there to explore what happened to Starro, but it's a it's a comedy where they're aliens and they're trying to blend in, they're trying to fit in while also solving a mystery. And here's the name of the movie, and maybe it'll help you kind of close the movie and be help me out on how I would finish it because I don't know how to land the plane other than the conceit but the movie is going to be called Starfish Out of Water uh, okay okay so they I come thought... to the planet initially to look for him figure out what happened and report back but they start to love being on earth and all of the, the potential hijinks that could ensue with a fish out of water story so I was thinking you were going to call it the Supernova Squad because a supernova is when a star <laughs> dies. Um, God damn it. But, but I like the fresh, the fish out of water, the starfish out of water. I think that's better for, for the comedy side, you know? Um, I'm trying to... Yeah, that was my challenge. Uh, how to make it into a comedy more so than the Suicide Squad is, and I wanted to just go... Well, to me, it's almost... Know. Once uh, the, the way that you continue, is like that all happens at the beginning of the movie... But like you said, as they they enjoy being on Earth, it is now them trying to fit in in a world that exists where people and no metahumans are. It is basically these now these these husks with starfishes across their faces trying to blend into like trying to adapt into everyday life. So like it's you've got like the 
the supernova squad that is trying to do like an office job and has that overbearing boss that just like you know almost like an <laughs> office space situation so like at a certain point it kind of spins off into like these little vignettes of all of the the supernova yes. squad basically trying to fit into human life and like you know you've got the one that winds up with a wife that's just yelling and nagging that you know that stereotypical scene where it's just like oh uh, running into this this everyday task and all that um but you know they gave up this life of being uh you know a a, a star criminal to to being an, an average everyday human via this thing and, and you know as a callback to to this movie suicide squad like you could have one of the starfish people like hey it's weird that i have a starfish on my face maybe i could do like a fake mustache to try to blend <laughs> in more you know Fuck. just how would you <laughs> How would you cover up the fact that you're trying to look normal, but you have a starfish on your face? You know, is it a birthmark? You know, lots of potential for a comedy there. Oh, yeah. With like the the glasses with the with the nose and the mustache, but it's still only one eye behind it. So like it doesn't make any <laughs> fucking sense whatsoever. Like I like I like them desperately trying to blend in with like being human you know yeah and i guess ultimately the movie that I, I didn't realize until now that i was kind of aping a little bit it's like something like coneheads yeah but it's it's starfish people yeah <laughs> oh i like it so I, yeah that that's my overview a little bit difficult but uh to turn a comedy into a comedy but that's what i got uh now the hbo miniseries i'm very intrigued on what you did with this so, so uh what you got this one's gonna be interesting i try I basically cut it into eight episodes i titled each episode and then went like a synopsis of like how what i would want to wow. go into right now okay my concern is that it's gonna be a little long so you know we're kind of testing i we will continue doing the miniseries because i think it's a very interesting genre and it is as you said when you suggested it as we were developing it it is very much like it is in our times like this is a lot of times the entertainment we'll be consuming is a like it's a game of thrones so like you know 20 years ago you would have had a game of thrones trilogy or something like that like a lord of the rings trilogy whereas now everything's like those big you know you know huge Prestige. narratives yeah, yeah. they're, they're Prestige, being turned into yeah. miniseries so this is this is where I kind of went with it. All right. So in my mind, I'm thinking what what hasn't been rebooted yet in a while? Something that had like just a a massive, massive fan base. All right. People loved it. Maybe ended a little little tragically, not the way a lot of fans were expecting, but probably still has has a little bit of, you know, a nostalgia feel if you were to kind of, you know, try and adapt it, you know, an homage and nothing else came to mind except for Lost. So I'm thinking, let's do like let's do like a Lost reboot. But everyone is a criminal. There's absolutely no magic on the island. It's not a magical island. Um, and they still have to complete their mission in order to survive, right? Um, so basically, I'm just taking kind of that flashback narrative, which I'm not. I was not a huge fan of in this. I'm not. I don't really like the flashback way of explaining things, like where you don't don't go through like the the narrative um what's the word i'm looking for uh just in a straight line what's the word god bless it i can't think of it uh sequential i don't, I don't know sure i know, we'll I know what that. you mean you know what i'm yeah it'll come to me probably at the end of the, the show but so but i do like you know lost was one of those where i the flashbacks were very like and the way they did the flashbacks were were great so 
episode one, it's gonna it's it's gonna be called Blood Brothers. All right. And I'm trying to keep a lot of what was in Suicide Squad because I thought there was a lot of greatness to it. It's just again kind of expelling it by expanding it into the eight you know, eight episodes. So episode one, Blood Brothers. So the plane crash lands in the water outside offside of the uh the coast of the island, right? Bloodsport winds up having to pull team members up out of the water. At a certain point, we're going to get a flashback, all right? And it's going to be Bloodsport and Flag back when they were in the military. Because Waller, you know, talks about how Flag recommended Bloodsport to, to lead right. the, the, the secondary team. Um, so, you know, we get a flashback of that. Um, we'll come back. It'll be, of course, you know, Bloodsport getting the team together, uh, you know, reviewing the mission, what they have to do, seeing who survived, who didn't. Um, at a certain point, we're also going to get a flashback of him and his daughter, the whole scene of him and his daughter, and then when he realizes that Amanda Waller basically is threatening to, you know, put her into a high-security prison and basically have her murdered. So we uh, establish his, you know, motivations and all that. Um, and essentially, it kind of establishes, again, Bloodsport as more of an anti-hero. He's got kind of this military, you know, past, you know, and then in addition, to, you know, he does have a, an affection for his daughter despite being very angry and, you know, kind of distant from her, right? Episode right. two, Starry Starry Night. All right. Oh, oh my god. So episode two is going to focus more on Starro and the Thinker. So this is where we're going to establish what Project Starfish is. All right. And I I actually reordered these episodes a lot to figure out narratively how I thought they would make the most sense. So, um, this is going to be like it's going to show a lot of the torture that basically Starro went through. Through you're going to see everything a lot through Starro's point of view. Um, I'm not sure who I would have narrate Starro. Maybe an Ed Norton. I think Ed Norton could be like with a maybe an auto tune could be a good Starro voice. Um, okay, I like that. But uh, you know, we'll see a lot of the torture again. It goes back into that whole line about like I was happy drifting among the stars. I think we established that early on, right? I don't think we wait and just basically sucker punch people at the end. We really show the thinker is a real piece of shit. All right, and we give motivation for Starro when he does escape. Escape. Um, the episode ends with the thinker talking to a shadowy or unseen figure, essentially establishing, or, you know, saying that they, you know, uh, a squad has been sent to destroy Starro and all of the research. But we don't know who the shadow figure is. I mean, we do because we know how the movie turns out. But, you know, the audience at this point doesn't know who our shadowy figure is. Episode three. Dottie. This is we're going to dive into dot, Polka Dot Man's past, and his mother will be Dottie, all right? Because I think it's kind of, oh, you know, it comes back, oh, Polka Dot, Dottie. So um, this is going to be a lot of him basically watching his brothers and sisters either developing superpowers or basically dying off. Makes him very jarred. It, it, it you know, goes back into kind of the emotional... Um, torture that he's had to deal with you know uh starro was a lot of his torture was physical a lot of polka dot man's torture will be kind of more on a mental side um and again narratively it plays more off of you know again these tortured souls you have starro and you have polka dot man um episode four dovetail um which dovetail is uh a term used like uh, when talking about things that join together um, very well uh, two things that like pair well and this is where I want to get into the relationship with Peacemaker and Amanda Waller and really explore how they are basically two sides of the same coin you know 
again, how I talked about in the review, Amanda Waller, the only difference between Amanda Waller and Peacemaker is that Peacemaker has been labeled a villain, whereas Amanda Waller has been labeled basically like, you know, a, a U.S. war hero, you know, because of she's willing to do the black ops job to keep people safe, you know. Um, it shows that the two of them, again, are the same. Um, and then... Uh, this is where we're going to reveal that Waller was essentially the shadowy figure that was talking to the thinker, and this is where we establish that the U.S. was behind a lot of the experiments, and now, again, the audience we're building on, the audience now realizes, like, oh, shit, like, this is kind of the motivation behind the Suicide Squad was essentially to, to stop people from finding out. Episode 5, this is where I threw in Harley Quinn. Uh, I figured we have to have her. I can't just take yeah, her out yeah. of it. DC, yeah, no, you wrote it without her, but then DC was like, "No, nah, Brett, no, nah, mm-hmm. Brett." Yeah, we see, we see that you have we you have uh, you know eight or seven episodes or however many I said. Uh, I think I only have seven, but we're, we're gonna need you to go ahead and throw in. You had an even six. We're gonna need you to go ahead and throw one in, make make it a nice seven, because um, we need that Harley Quinn episode. So. Um, this I really didn't do much more than what they did in the movie. I think it'll just be more. It'll be longer um flashbacks of her she's also the only one that i didn't really have a whole lot of pairing with so like flashbacks of her with the joker flashbacks of her in the black mask this is how we establish that this essentially this movie is in the dc uh entertainment universe or whatever um and i like the idea of this one kind of ending with her speech about bad relationships before she kills the president and then is basically uh, you know captured episode six rats in a cage this is where we get to dive into the to Ratcatcher 2 and her flashbacks, um, you know, her relationship with her father. This is where we learn more, you know, how, you know, even though these are considered villains very much, they can have her loving relationships. You know, we've established in the earlier episodes with the torture that Polka Dot Man had, the torture with Starro, um, even, you know, basically uh, Bloodsport's Fall from Grace. This is where we establish that these villains are redeemable. Um, well, you know... King Shark's going to be throughout this, but King Shark is already kind of that I am Groot. Like, you can't do a whole flashback episode on somebody who doesn't have any, like, doesn't have a lot of background. I think the way they approached it in the movie was perfect, but Rats in a Cage, we get more about her. Again, shows the softer side of the villains that, you know, they're they're people too, um, or shark people. Um, And then uh, it'll be the group breaking Harley out, and then the gang getting back together, essentially, right? Um... Maybe we can have them meet at the bar. I don't know, because I think Harley Quinn... Honestly, Harley Quinn did not need to be part of the bar sequence because she probably would have basically taken that scene. I understand why they did. Now that I'm talking it through, I understand why Harley Quinn had to be by herself. Because if you didn't, that character sucks all of the air out of a room. Um, And you would not have been able to allow the other characters to bond and adapt if you were constantly looking for what Harley Quinn would be doing in the background, because that's her character and what she has to be doing. So I actually I get why Gunn did it. I still think she just didn't need to be in the movie, period. But okay, gang gets back together. Uh, Episode seven essentially float on That's the big finale where the group must battle together to defeat Starro. Only difference is, and this, I think that, like, maybe they kill. If Starro does die, maybe a little baby Starro comes out that's still alive, and essentially the team finds a way to launch it back into space. So, like, they're still, like, Starro doesn't die, he's allowed to live on, and basically they launch it back in. Because we've already established that Starro was not actually a villain, despite the fact that he was made into a villain because of the horrendous acts against him, as well as the fact that just by virtue you know 
he is a scorpion he's gonna sting you like he has to you know sprout out these little the star people so basically launch him back into space so that he can continue to just kind of drift because my thought is if there's a telekinetic telekinetic uh attachment with all of them then the consciousness of big starro would transport into a little starro so it's like it's almost like Groot and baby Groot type thing and then basically right. launch starro back in and he gets to continue floating on and that's kind of how we'll end the whole series is again that's kind of the redeeming quality same very much similar things i think Bloodsport still keeps the drive and uses it to basically you know um what is it get his freedom for him and the rest of that that suicide squad but that's that's how i built this into a mini series i mean it's uh oh we're recording at 10:30 at night and I live in an apartment so I'm going to not give you a bunch of applause but just know <laughs> I god damn I okay so this might be a little meta but I'm going to say when you kind of told me that you did a full 8 episode treatment I was like there's no way that this could possibly be entertaining to go through 8 episodes or I guess 7 technically part of it obviously has to go to James Gunn because he built a great skeleton that you can kind of expand off of. But God, I love that. Like the only reason I'm frustrated is because this is never actually going to be a mini series. Like I, I do want to see this version of expansion that, that you just provided. Cause yeah. Yeah. And to, I, your, yeah, to your point, I, a lot of it is James Gunn just did a fantastic job. I mean, it is, the movie I think is too long as it is as a as a movie, but it is one of those I would gladly had seen it expanded into a miniseries. Like it is that group of characters. I think there was more story to tell with them um, had they wanted to go down that easily. More story to tell with each of them had they wanted to. Yeah, I I, I think. Uh... I want to stay on your chop shop, but I also think it asks, it presents another interesting question that I want to touch on. But uh, yeah, James Gunn, like what he did here, I think the miniseries conceit that we're going to do where every now and then one of us is going to have to expand a movie. This is the perfect kind of movie to do it when you have a cast where almost to a person, I want more of everyone that I see on screen. Um, I think it'll be interesting to do the uh, the miniseries Chop Shop on something where that's the complete opposite, like something like <laughs> yeah. Italian Job. Like, yeah. how do you ring out eight more hours? But in this case, man, it, it's right for it. And it, it's no surprise that you came up with a great idea. Um, so I guess this is just to close out that segment, though. And, and I hope I don't spoil something you wanted to talk about. But would you want to see James Gunn become the Kevin Feige of DC? No. No, I would. Okay. My reason now, behind that is because I think James Gunn is fantastic. He's like most things. He is great in moderation. I could not imagine getting like James Gunn is at great. He's, he's the rock of like movies to me when you need to revitalize a, like a, a a franchise you put Dwayne the Rock Johnson in it and like the, it'll inject it and get some energy into it like that's what they did with the Fast and the Furious and you know it's what they tried to do with the mummy um 
to me, James Gunn is a great example of like when things start to get stagnant and a little dry, let James Gunn put something into your, your IP and all of a sudden it's like, okay, phew, I, that, that was a, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm refreshed that, you know, I got some Gatorade in me. Let's go. Um, I could not imagine an entire cinematic universe of James Gunn movies. I feel like they'd get old real quick. I'm so glad you said that because I'm in lockstep with you. I hope that because I think this movie is going to be a big success. I hope that DC doesn't fall victim to what they did last time, which is, hey, Zack Snyder's a a nice name and he's got a a very specific way of making a film. Let's give him everything. I hope James Gunn continues to be the change up or the fixer, uh, I think is what you're describing, Mm -hmm. like uh, the wolf in Pulp Fiction. Like, hey, there's a problem with this franchise. Let's bring in James Gunn. I hope that DC continues on this path of trying to make a wide array of movies, you know, I, I like that DC has Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. I like that they have now James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. I'm glad that they have Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman under Patty Jenkins. I hope they keep doing that. Mm-hmm. I I would love to see like a, a The Suicide Squad trilogy, kind of like what he's doing with Guardians of the Galaxy. Like if you wanted to, I'd love to see him continue with these characters that he's built. But like like you were saying, I would not want to see him over like a like 20 movie like project like i i think i would start to hate them you know very agreed, much agree yeah agree uh, uh but yeah what uh what's our next segment all righty let's jump right in you want to do some tag and title let's do some tag and title all right so for those who have not listened what i'm gonna do is i'm going to read off three taglines for our good buddy Travis here. His objective is to tell me what the actual tagline for this movie is. Now, the other two taglines, one of them I have written myself, and the other one is typically pulled from a movie I find that, uh, related, you know, to, to kind of throw them off. So it's, it's an official tagline to a related movie in some way. So if you're ready, I will read you off the three taglines. Hit me. All right. Worst heroes ever. Do you believe in second second chances? They're dying to save the world. Those are your three okay. taglines. I can repeat any of them. Do you have any? Do you have any feelings? I think worst heroes ever is the 2016 suicide squad final answer um final answer all right you're right that is the 20 the tagline to the 2016 suicide squad which just quickly it's uninspired and (laughs) kind of unoriginal so that's what tipped me off and plus like I remember the big thing about the 2016 Suicide Squad was like, oh, they're not heroes, they're villains. So that tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other one is, do you believe in second, second chances? Mm-hmm. And they're dying to save the world. Um, the, they're dying to save the world. I'm going to say that's the tagline for this movie. Yeah, absolutely. 
which is, is, again, a big improvement on the original's tagline, much like this movie is a big improvement over the original movie. So, yeah, I like that. Uh, but as often is the case, I like the one that you created, which I'm assuming is, do you believe in second, second chances? Yeah, because I couldn't help but take a shot at the fact that they were basically redoing this movie. So. <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> And again, I wish I wish that was the tagline because it would have it, it really shows, though, to me that taglines are created by robots, the studio or, or robots <laughs> or the studio. But last last in line is the filmmaker, uh, mm-hmm. because yours uh, in this case, I think that's very much something that James Gunn would have appreciated. A yeah, little little meta to the movie, a little meta, a little fuck you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so with that said, um, there's obviously no blue book for this week because this is our, our direct to home movie, despite it is releasing in theaters as well. This is the, you know, once a week we try and hit one where it went straight to streaming services. So with that numbers are not easy to come by if able to get at all, um, or they're heavily skewed. So do you want to try and do time capsule this week or we want to wait and do that maybe next trilogy well i i want to do time capsule because i think it presents an opportunity to just touch on one thing that we didn't it won't be what the time capsule will be in future episodes mm-hmm. uh just to give the audience some background we want to kind of just look at any element of a movie a decade prior so example we could do what idris elba was doing a decade ago or what james gunn was doing a decade ago or where superhero movies were a decade ago so it's kind of a, a an all catch or a, a catch-all um but just it just popped into my brain i want to talk about john cena's movie summer okay um because we saw fast nine together mm-hmm. uh, which also has john cena and i was just very did you at any point compare John Cena's performance in this to his performance in Fast 9? No, but do you want to know the first note that I had? In my, aside from the, I like that they explained everything in the first five minutes. My next, uh, oh no, and then I said the side bets were really funny. That was a really funny scene when they're taking, you know, um, bets yes, on who's going to yes. survive the, the Deadpool. My third note in the entire thing was the... Better acting from Pete Davidson in the 30 seconds than all of King of Staten Island. <laughs> Dude, oh my God. So, and that but. piggybacks perfectly because I felt the same with John Cena. Like, if you were to watch Pete Davidson and King of Staten Island, which we did, you would think horrendous. If you watch John Cena in Fast 9, you would think horrendous. And yet, in this movie, I mean, Pete Davidson obviously is on, he's got what, like five to 10 minutes, but he's. He's funny. Like yeah. I, that's he's legitimately that's funny. About. <laughs> in King of Staten Island, that's what we took. Both of us hit on the fact that he is a nice side character. He does not need to lead a movie. And this is a exhibit A of that. I do not fuck or, with werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> but even Cena, and I thought it was funny because in this movie, Cena is a quote unquote hero until he has like a, a heel flip at the end. And then Fast 9, he's a heel and then has a, unex- well, very much expected face slash hero turn. But 
just the dynamic of John Cena in Fast 9 just being wooden and terrible. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, my my favorite scene of a dramatic sort was when he kills Rick Flagg. I was amazed by John Cena just the, the acting that he does with his face. And I 100% believe that he does not want to kill Rick Flagg, but he is – he believes in Amanda Waller's code of, you know, country above all else, even to the detriment of what well, I mean, I guess they even say it like he's peacekeeper and he'll do whatever it takes to keep the peace. Like I, the, the contrast between even his if performance it means the entire time, bag of dicks, if, if the beach was covered in dicks if, and that meant freedom was in danger, peace was in danger. He'd eat all those dicks. He'd eat all the dicks. Um, so I, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because Cena, if you watch Fast Nine, you would think he's a bad actor. If you watch this, I would think in the right hands, he's very capable. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it goes back to, to, to you know, to do a sports analogy. But like people don't understand the value of a good coach on a, on a football team. And this is very much the same to this movie. You don't understand the importance of a good director because you get so much more out of John Cena in this movie than you do out of Fast 9. I mean, he is he is very fun in this movie. Like to the point where I'm like I I look forward to the Peacekeeper mini like uh mini series. Like I think that is I am legitimately looking forward to that because I enjoyed James Gunn because I believe James Gunn's attached to that too. James Gunn and John Cena in in this movie. So I'm like Again, it's one of those we'll test to see how much James Gunn can I take in a sitting. Like, can I do eight hours of that before I'm like, I'm fucking over this? Um, but uh, I do. I he he was. I mean, he he had he had range in a superhero movie. So yes, and I'm very excited for that spinoff. I didn't even know that existed until after I watched this movie. But I'm I'm very intrigued to see what James Gunn does with. A, a series based on a character that is i mean he kills rick flag like mm-hmm. i know that he's remorseful about it but he also would kill rat catcher too if not for um idris elba showing up so i'm very intrigued to see the tone of that series because man as charismatic as he is he's not a likable character yeah. so I, I have high hopes for that absolutely and just just to go back again, I guess I I did see a little bit of with like James Gunn talked about like he intentionally tried to choose like D list heroes for this movie because he's like the Suicide Squad like the original comic book like it was supposed to be D list heroes like it was supposed to be the heroes or the our D list villains it was supposed to be the villains that were so bad they were even bad at being bad like they're just they're not good <laughs> and I think right. again the idea that like, he literally casts Rat Catcher two like he actually cast somebody who has a two in their name like the second one i thought was funny in of itself yeah no 100 percent um so i mean it feels like unless you have anything else do you want to just transition into how we kind of recommend this movie yeah absolutely all right i'll let you i'll let you lead it off um i definitely watch um it's uh it's funny for us to say this. Like, I think it is one of those. If I saw like a bargain bin, uh, Blu-ray or like a, a Black Friday deal, I I would pay full price if it had good, um, like a director's commentary and like some special features. But we said like that's a unicorn these days, especially with all the streaming shit. 
Um, but honestly, like if I could find the Blu-ray like on a Black Friday special, I would easily add that to my physical collection. Like I could, I could see me going back and watching this. Like I own Guardians of the Galaxy for the same reason. Like it is when I have the superhero fatigue or like I need something a little bit different, I will go back and watch that movie. And I very much enjoyed this movie. Um, so I, I definitely think it's a watch if you are in the superhero genre, especially if you're a fan of James Gunn. Um, but I, I think I will probably at some point I will probably own this movie. I'm not going to go out and buy it as soon as it comes out on physical, but I, I could see myself owning it. Yeah, uh, we are in agreement there. I I can't tell you how much fun I had watching this movie. I think at our age, a lot of enjoying a movie is is as much about our expectations coming in. Like I said, I have superhero fatigue, so I didn't expect much. So that may color how much I love this movie right now, but I will absolutely own this movie physically one day, uh, as long as they give me any level of special features, because I guardians of the galaxy is an easy comparison. I think I love this one even more because it gives me everything that guardians gives me but it has a nihilistic R-rated edge. And <laughs> it's definitely that, darker. <laughs> yeah, that pushes it from a, you know what, like if Guardians is on Netflix and I need something to watch while I'm folding laundry, I'll throw it on in the background. This is a movie that I can appreciate on that level, but if I also just want to get down and dirty and try to, you know, get in the characters' heads, you can do that with this movie as well. So this is, I... I'm shocked to say, but I it's one of the highest recommends I could give on the movies that we've watched for this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the best thing is the whole Harley Quinn part gives you an intermission where you can go cook dinner or fold laundry or, you know, because um, like that, that's the only the only beat in the entire movie where I was just kind of like, OK, like I'm I'm like the pacing. There's the only time that I ever had a pacing issue is when it, it suddenly swaps to we have to figure out why Harley Quinn is here and how she's going to get back with the rest of the group. But outside of that, I mean, just again, fantastic movie. And here's the thing. If I'm Margot Robbie, yes, all that stuff feels shoehorned in. But if this were a Harley Quinn movie only, James Gunn did a good job of serving that character. Mm -hmm. Like it, he did a great job. It just doesn't fit in this movie. So if I'm Marco Robbie, I'm definitely telling Warner Brothers, hey, I know the Harley Quinn character is extremely valuable to this brand. I want James Gunn on the next movie. Um, because I think if, if James Gunn is told, hey, Harley, you don't have to focus on 10 characters. Harley Quinn's the thrust, the focus. He would kill that script as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add this as a little a tidbit onto it. I also think as much as we thought this movie was a big fuck you to um, the Suicide Squad, I also think, because you didn't see Birds of Prey, I also think this was a giant middle finger to Birds of Prey, because you already said about like the development in terms of like her getting with bad guys and like red flags and all that, and killing kids is a red flag, but um, which again comes back in this movie. That's a payoff, because that's essentially a, Amanda Waller when her like employees hits her with the golf club it's because there's yes. kids like again it's we're we're creating this like narrative like in this world everybody kind of cares about the same thing but the scene in which harley quinn escapes the prison and has to fight her way through the prison is almost a like the exact same scene that's in birds of prey when harley quinn has to basically she 
fights her way in and then out of a prison to basically, I think she like helps somebody escape prison. But the way that the two movies approach that are completely different, like this one has like the colorful, like weird, like because Harley's a little crazy, the flowers coming out behind her, the way she attacks everybody makes sense. Like, you know, she's wearing the red dress. Um, whereas, you know, despite the fact that Birds of Prey was not supposed to be sexist during the whole Me Too movement, all that Harley Quinn's fight through the um, police precinct makes no sense. And at a certain point becomes a wet T-shirt contest because for some reason, all of the sprinklers go off and she's fighting all of these criminals and cops in a wet white T-shirt. And I'm like, it's just to me, it's night and day to see somebody take take you know essentially the same scene and how they direct it completely different it has a completely different impact yes i'm glad you brought that up because we didn't mention that in the the review proper but even down to the way james gunn has her dress she's got the the ball gown the red ball gown but then she finds the military combat boots like even stuff like that just the amount of care and precision that James Gunn puts into it. Cause I mean, that's an iconic, like I guarantee you that's going to spawn a million Halloween costumes for mm -hmm. women. If I were a woman and hell, I'm not even a woman. Maybe I'll still wear it as a Halloween costume. That's iconic. The black combat boots with the ripped dress and like even down to her dress is ripped because she uses it as a weapon at one point. Mm -hmm. Like again, that's why I'm like, if I'm Margot Robbie, and I seriously think that I can make a ton of Harley Quinn money by playing that character. I, I want James Gunn's hand involved in making that. Yep. Absolutely. So to wrap up this one, uh, thematically, I think everybody can hear again. It is insane how important good direction and good script is because there's few examples. I mean, I guess the Lion King was, the Lion King was just art direction in general, but this seeing Suicide Squad and the Suicide Squad, it is just it is insane to see how different something can be in, in different hands. Um, so kudos to, to James Gunn um, for uh, for a fantastic, fantastic movie. Yeah, absolutely. I. Uh... I feel like this is going to be one where we listen to it after you post it, and I'm going to regret not mentioning five to ten different things. Just mm -hmm. that's how – I know I talk about overstuffed movies, but this is overstuffed in a, a good way. There's just so much that will reward a, a second watch. So, yeah, can't recommend it highly enough. Last thing I'll say is just to go back to the scene where they attack the, the rebel village – the scene starts off with a giant shark man sneaking around in the background before eating somebody. <laughs> and I was our before the scene started, I was laughing at a giant shark sneaking around in the background. Because <laughs> like, it was so ridiculous. Yeah, I'm going to go on record right now and I'm going to say uh, King Shark is greater than Groot. Give me. I hope King Shark gets all the love that Groot got off of the first and second Guardians of the Galaxy. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. With that said, I guess we'll go ahead and next to you. What are we reviewing next week? It'll be part of the ensemble trilogy. I can't remember. It is uh, the Emilio Estevez classic Young Guns. Young Guns. All right. So let's find out what we are going to be. 
um, turning that into? Do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. All right. I will be turning Young Gun. Wait, what are we defining that movie as? Is it horror, blockbuster, Oscar bait, miniseries, comedy, or family friendly? Uh, I would say it's. It was supposed to be a blockbuster. It's supposed to be block. Okay, so we'll take blockbuster off the line. Uh, thing. So I have to turn it into Oscar bait. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Jesus. Yes. Uh, you know what? I feel like I've gotten the short end of the stick with this new system, but now I think finally you are. So I'm, I'm happy about that. I probably shouldn't have said that until I got my category, though. You have to turn it into family-friendly. God fucking damn it. <laughs> Is that really what it landed on? Yeah, or you absolutely. Just I'm, me, not, I'm not fucking with you. You got family-friendly. God damn it. Yeah, I shouldn't have spoke. I shouldn't have said anything. All right. So, Family friendly young guns. <laughs> Would you say it like that? It just... <laughs> well, you know, family friendly young guns, it's put put weapons into the hands of children. That's that's where my mind goes. So we'll see what happens next week when we review that. Uh, anything else before we go? Uh, nope, I think that'll do it. All right, well, uh, hand. Good? Yeah, the only thing is, you fucking dickhead, that, I, I just, that was a callback to the movie, so if you're not worried about putting that in there, we're good. Like, if you feel like what we just did is enough to encompass the movie so we can do the fucking decade i thought it was funny i'm sure you haven't seen space jam a new legacy and we're not going to review no. it but that's a huge part of space jam a new legacy is it basically starts off with lebron james coach telling like making him throw away his game boy so what I, yeah that's why i threw that in there is i thought it was funny something like, there's no way i'm like there's no fucking way travis knows that he made a space jam 2 reference in this so i'm gonna go ahead and tell him he made a space jam 2 reference in this <laughs>